Welcome to the best that man can get. And today's guest is the kind of guy that helps people die safely. He blows up the forces of evil and helps the world shine for another day. For 25 years, he has lived the thrill seeker's life, living in New Zealand with his wife of 25 years, two children and a puppy. Ladies and gents, I give you the Hollywood stuntman that is Augie Davis. Hello. James. Good morning, afternoon, <laughs> evening it is from here, actually, yeah. Yeah, it is. You're uh, 13 hours ahead, upside down in New Zealand, I take it right now. Yeah, pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's dark outside and you're just having a coffee. Yeah, I am indeed. Yes, uh, all lit up, but I am calming the sun down a bit because it does shine a bit intensely through my window. Not that I'm complaining because it is a vital life source. So that's all good. Um, a question for you. As a man of uh, stunt coordination and creating films and working on sets, what land is the best place in the world to make a film? And then when you found that place or decided on it, what subject would you like to record in that fantastic location? Ooh, yeah, that's a big question. And um, well, I have a, a little affinity with water and I would always say New Zealand is like the number one location, but the water here is actually bloody freezing. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and, and I say that with a huge level of honesty and I've lived here for 40 years, but my other, my other home is in Fiji is where I grow up. So um, I would never turn down an opportunity to go and film in Fiji. Ah. And of course it has to have the water and um the sharks over in Fiji are never that hungry because there's plenty of other fish around. Okay. Fiji's, a great, Fiji's a pretty great destination. and um, But when you look at it on the map, it looks like quite a commitment, a lot of ocean to um, get across to get there. Um, but it is a, um, you know, I think it, it's, um, I think quietly before I retire, I'd like to do something like Waterworld again. You know, um, <laughs> again. <laughs> Yeah. just without the just without all the problems they had in the first film but you know for a for somebody like me who grew up by the water and loves the water and loves the warm weather and loves everything that has to do with water um some people will be cars and some will be martial arts uh, or something for me water is always right. a place where it's a great it's, it's something that i love to do maybe it's a romance with action and, and, okay. uh, but yes bring it on anything with water but uh, in saying that look I'd do it anywhere in the world, but um, if you're giving me an option, BJ. Yeah, I got you. When, when you say like a, an action cut, would that be like older, uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s, it was like Romancing in the Stone, Michael Douglas, and uh, whatever, that sort of style film? Yeah, they were great. I think that was a great era in the action films. It just seemed like it. Um, the industry had arrived, and um, and it was the last, it was the last, probably part of our industry where people could say I'm a stuntman and they gave you license to do anything yeah and uh, before the, the more rules came down and people wanted great accountability now you have people who um, who make a career about specializing in certain things and uh, one thing you definitely see now is there's a lot of uh, martial arts in action and just because it's economical to shoot uh, that kind of stuff unless you're in LA or of course okay. in the UK but there was a last era when people the same guys who drive the cars would end up doing the falls out of the big buildings and uh, also being on fire, rolling down the stairs, and probably half of them could not throw a punch to save themselves. But regardless, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were they were they were breaking records, doing things in those days, and um, and you know people came up to. There was a time when I started in the industry. There was um, 
people were saying, you know, if you haven't broken your arm three times, you're not really a, a real stuntman. But my generation, perhaps the the first generation that started to say, well, if you're breaking your arm three times in this career, maybe you should retire. And, wow. Um, yeah. That's, that's a significant change in the point of view, isn't it? Oh, very much so. And, um, you know, and, uh, but you know, I looked up to that previous generation um, uh, and, you know, the, the fine, it's always trying to find the balance between the adventure and, um, you know, what is, what is acceptable, you know, what is the difference between foolhardy and bravery? That's the great uh, mystery. Yeah. Uh, and um, the one thing about the film industry and stunts in particular, it gives you an opportunity to um, ask those questions and look at it in a, in a constructive way. And um, you can't really, it's not even about safety first because that's not even in the equation because safety first means don't get out of the car stay at home in bed <laughs> yeah you know it's, it's uh, strange because i i i do you know i am weirdly envious of people who can just simply vault over a fence it's just something it's not within me to do you know out in the country and there'll be a fence to climb over i'll climb over it it'll take me a while I'll be wobbling trying to get my leg over other people just vault over it like a gazelle is that well, a fundamental part of their being, or is it a skill you work on? No, I think I think if you if that's a skill that you have to work on, then you need to kind of look. It's a big of a generalization. I think you need to look at your upbringing, and um, you know what uh, what was wrapped around you to, um, to 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 think. The first thing to think about is look for a gate when you get to a fence. Although yes. there's consideration when you grow up in a farm, you know, you, you use the gate if you can, or which side of the gate you climb on. Um, look, I think, um, you know, I'm 51 now, and uh, there's a time for everything. And um, when I come to a gate, or to a fence, I look for the gate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, where's my, my 15 year old boy is jumping over it. And, you know, I never, uh, I, you know, I was jumping gate the fences up to about in my mid forties and realized that I wasn't getting a medal for doing it. And so I'll just find the nearest um, gate to do. Good philosophy. Yeah, it's a good metaphor. Right. I've got a question from a member of the audience here. This is a brilliant question. I've got to ask this one because as, as you mentioned about being young there. Right. Mm. The question is this. This is from Mark Marshall. I often look back on my childhood and think, how did I survive? You have little to no fear as a child. We used to tie a skateboard to the back of a BMX and go full speed down the street wearing my nan's old scooter helmet and hope for the best as we smashed into the wall at the bottom of the street. What's the one crazy stunt you can remember as a child? Well, I made it to 10 years old without dying. And, that was, uh, <laughs> and um, part of that was, um, look, I grew up in Fiji and I had to have my first pair of shoes until I was 10. And wow. uh, the first time, the first time I, um, well, even that was um, flip-flops when I came to New Zealand. And um, so our, you know, the, our, our backyard, um, you know, if you wanted a something with wheels, um, you asked one of the people with machetes in the village to shape one up for you with him, with your knife and uh, with whatever you can find. That was my upbringing. And um, so um you know what crazy thing did i do I mean, it was a whole lot of things and um and it, 
later it actually became difficult for me for, to accept stunt work as an actual and honorable career um, because of this worldview, uh, I guess, worldview and experience that I've had. Yeah. It seemed like a lot of the risk that we take in the developed world are very, um, I guess what you can say, I don't want to belittle it, but it almost compared to that upbringing was almost forced and, um, you know, it's a luxury for those who have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we got, you know, I worked as a, when I started to climb mountains and canoe rapids down rivers, I would take my, show my pictures of my adventures back to some of my family members in my village where I grew up and, you know, the question was, I was very proud of this photo of me and a few people climbing with ropes attached and we're above the clouds on Mount Taranaki. And, um, and the question from one of my relatives was, what were you going up there for? <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but, you know, and Edmund Hillary's answer when he conquered Everest, when he was asked the same question because it was there, just didn't really... Uh, wasn't really the appropriate answer yeah. uh, to my cousin. And it's the same for uh, trying to explain what I do as a career being a stuntman. It's actually very limited words in the Fijian language to even explain what being a stuntman is. Just somebody who does dangerous things and you get paid for it seems a bit yeah. bizarre. That's the story of their life daily, going out to fish and uh, you know, you grow, you eat what you grow. Um, yeah, but you know, it's um, you know, technology has helped now. Now they've got solar panels and generators in the village, and and um, you know, and they do watch movies and yeah, uh, and okay. start, you know, some of the dots a bit more. Did you have, now. Did you ever have the accusation though when you were young if you did something and someone go, "You're mental. Why are you doing that for you, madman?" That was that sort of like you did something that sort of was above and beyond other people in regards to what you went and did. Oh, yes, no, definitely. It was always there. I mean, that's what great parenting does, regardless of where you live. And they do want you to make it through. And, um, um, but, you know, having sores and cuts were the norm. Um, mm. I've got a great immunity system as a result. Um, uh, playing a game with uh, a limp is normal. Um, it, I mean, what are you going to do? Sit on the sideline and watch your friends who are yeah. carrying other problems play. Uh, but, yes, um, the, uh, in saying that, look, I, I buried some very close uh, people to me before I was 10 as well, you know, and uh, my age and some slightly older. And um, uh, the environment was really harsh on everybody, uh, but fun was uh, still sought after by our younger selves uh, in many ways. Uh, I look back on the distance that we, before the age of 10, we strapped these uh, bamboo rafts together and we would paddle out polling and you know i go back there now and see cover the distance to the nearby reefs and i'm saying truth we came out here before we were 10 years old by ourselves and um that's good two and a half kilometers of water of blue water and, wow. uh, you know, and so now we do it with a paddleboard it'll probably have water support and life jackets and probably a wetsuit and um take tourists right. there who pay thousands of dollars to yeah, well, that's weird. My daughter's is eleven, and I get nervous when she's got a glass of water. So the fact oh, that you're out paddling across water at the age of ten is uh, <laughs> quite an eye opener in itself to a Western bloke, as it were. Wow. Um, well, okay. yeah. I, well, I'm just saying that. I just want to put some uh, perspective too. I mean, one of the things that um, 
that was really relevant at that stage was um, there was always, you know, adults were always aware um, that allowed certain things. And there was also, um, um, there'll be older kids around as well. And also um, you, you're very connected to the conditions as well. And so um, it just didn't happen Mm. Whenever it suited, there was all, the weather had to be taken into account. We didn't know how, but you know, I always remember the days were always calm when we were out there. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, uh, everything everything was almost doable. So you know, it's one of those things that um, I've learned to appreciate how connected to the environment um, my people were when mm. we were kids, and uh, so we weren't going out there and having to worry that the storm was coming. And it just seemed like people were in tune. And uh, yeah, how's that? Uh... In sort of as you are now a father, do you do you think you're a different father to many others in regards to your background and how you were brought up and how you treat and let your children grow in their own way compared to other people who don't have that background? Uh, it's, yeah, it's very difficult, and um, in the sense that I've lived in New Zealand for forty years, but although a lot of my worldview and how I see things was very much shaped by those early years, I did marry a a full bloated kiwi you know who's doesn't look anything like me she's blue eyes and all the rest of it and we have zebras for kids and um (laughs) (laughs) and who uh who stand up for either you know i say i have three i have problems with three white people and you know two of them my children one's my wife and i have problem my wife has problem with three black people two of them are her kids and one is me yeah and uh and so um yeah it's a bit colorful in that stage no look i think um you know the it does shape uh, the way i view parenting and uh and also it helps me um I'm, I'm probably a bit more of a relaxed father as a result because i think the um i'm not i don't struggle for the same things that my parents did yeah. and um uh, but also, I'm very aware that um, that I've had we've as a couple have had to create um, challenges and risk activities that our children can take part in and still come back um, alive. Yeah. And um, but it's also for me personally, I think that is um, I did not know how much was involved in getting the. Um, especially my male friends who are fathers as well, we need each other to kind of give us permission to do what we can do with our kids because our kids are connected and, you know, our kids, there's a point where our our children are going out together now as 16, 17 year old with each other. So a lot of that is is almost looking to each other as parents and seeing what's acceptable Mm. amongst us as dads, you know, this, I know some friends of mine push the boundaries a lot more than I do with their children when it comes to danger. And I do in other aspects. And somewhere there has to be a, I have a friend whose son is a champion mountain biker, but he's very much one of my son's good friends. He's a rock. My son is a very hot volleyball player compared to him. So there's all these, yeah. Yeah, um, as much as I support other parents with their kids, pushing the boundaries of their kids, I also know that there's got to be tempered with the fact that one day they'll be going out with people less experienced than they are. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's kind of all those one unspoken partnerships we see and encourage each other to go hard with our children. Mm. And uh, at the same time, just going, well, give them some leadership skills too, so that um, 
they'll be leading other people who are not as developed in that area particularly when they yeah. go out. As a parent, just uh, because you work in the field of films, and in your line of work where violence may come up, do you think, how did you control or filter what your children were allowed to see? Or did you just leave them wide open to the film content of the modern day world? Because I find it even hard to take my daughter to the cinema. And even in the trailers, there's probably a minute's worth of violence. And we're going to go and watch an animated film. It's like, there just seems to be more and more violence proliferating through. Did you have to filter it or are you sort of, well, they can evaluate and throw it out as being just fantasy? Oh, no, we definitely have to filter it. I think it's um, for a person who works in it, I think it's irresponsible to, and you do it with books and, and everything. Um, uh, one of the things that, uh, that really, my son was six, he came home from a birthday party and says, hey, dad, I just seen one of the Marvel films. Mm. And um, it's true. <laughs> yes. And he said it was cool. And I was like, I celebrated with him. It wasn't, the problem was, it wasn't on our two watch list for another you know, four to five years. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've had to do for my own was that um, right from early stages, I wanted to make movies that my own children would watch. And I think I had to start with me. Um, so I made movies that, um, which was really hard because I wanted to make money yeah. and do cool films and have impressive credits. And I'm always aware in the back of my mind that every movie that I make my children will watch and also some of my friends and family and i didn't want to cringe if i had to sit next to them and yeah. so i made this so i made this stand right earlier on that i really that's a good gauge though isn't it yeah that's a brilliant yes, it gauge. is yeah and uh well it was something that actually steven spielberg did and that's when i was starting in the business you know steven spielberg when he was receiving his lifetime award he said that very thing you know that his children are his good or his biggest critics and he makes movies that they could watch and and as you watch steven spielberg's film they've grown with his kids the content mm. steven's uh, when he made shimmer's list his kids were age that could watch that you know prior to that he was making you know jaws i think because he hadn't any kids and then he went to yeah back to the future and more got you you know and and also the other thing he did say on that same speech was that um film and media is film particularly is the church of the new millennium you know uh, there was going to be the people traditionally looked to family and and cinema to help shape their worldview sorry to the church and to family to help to shape their worldview in the new millennium looking ahead about 15 years into the new millennium was yeah was going to be that was going to shape the way people view the world wow and that was intentionally quite, that was quite... do you reckon or by or just by turn of events oh i think um look i think uh, film and internet coming in probably had a has now a bigger a bigger say in that how we see the world yeah. um uh, more so than films uh remember films was a Film was, cinemas were a landmark in most communities. Let's meet by the cinema or, or that or the pub or the church. It was mm. one of those three things. Uh, cinema was definitely the place where you go and you dress up and you meet. And um, it was a place that you look forward to. Uh, that kind of, that's slowly dying under the current circumstances that we find ourselves in in 2021. Mm. Uh, so the internet is becoming... Um, more that place and you know the battle right now is not the battle for 
it seems with the internet, you know, my industry is changing and I can feel it. It seems like there's more issue on creating content rather than necessarily creating those special projects yeah. that you'd sit next to your family and wonder whether they're going to cringe or not. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, more and more material coming to me now are, are there because of because they want content. And also with that, there is um, some... Um, sense that we need to make this because it suits the certain climate of audience and what people want to see a lot right. more box ticking it is i mean yeah. that could be a tangent is that filmmaking though you because i've always thought originally that filmmaking and creation was to pioneer and to expand thoughts whereas now they're using market research and it's a sort of filmmaking in reverse you're going by what the viewer wants well you're not going to make any progress if you're going with what the viewer wants, if you see what I mean. Is that how mm. it's sort of start, starting to pan out in the filmmaking industry, that you're basically baking, fi- baking? Uh, making films on survey and opinion as opposed to true creative pushing the boundaries? Well, I'm probably not super qualified to say it because I'm a stuntman. I point the camera <laughs> at me and I'll fall down and break something. <laughs> okay. But I guess one of the things that I, especially in my area, is that... Um, um, it's a business and so it's at some point it is a business and you measure success of any business by financial returns mm-hmm. and um, at the end of the day if you're just it's just a hobby unless you're getting money back for your the people who are investing I know that's a very capitalist way to look at it but yeah. I think but the, the business of making films is not cheap by any means unless you've got a lot of uh, people out there who are giving away money uh, to spread uh, to spread a message, which I think there is a place, which very much is a place for that. Um, right now, it's hard to know because so many things are under the guise of, um, 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 I'm not sure how to say it, you know, without criticizing some of my employers, but a lot of the work has become very predictable because you, um, you know, you, in many ways, a lot of the, it's that saying, you know, a lot of the movies out there are preaching a message to acquire that's um it seems like that's what they're wanting or they're not questioning anything else um one of the things about uh, films in general it's um it's one of the few places where you can go and sit somewhere and all your senses are triggered on your behalf you don't have to use there's no motivation it's all done for you it tells you what to hear it tells you what to see and those things controls in some sense, tells you what to feel yeah. uh, as well. You know, it's, it's not like reading a book or having a real life experience where you uh, where you feel fear because your life literally depends because you're standing on the edge of a cliff. That's a different kind of um, experience. Um, mm. So I think a lot of it has to go back to the audience in terms of what do you want uh, when you go to the movies. Do you want to be told what to think and feel? Uh, or are you just are you going for an adventure like when I did uh, when I went to the video store was I pulled something out of my out of the shelf because I like the cover I like certain things was on the cover now it seems like when I go on Netflix and YouTube the algorithms tells me what I should be watching mm. yeah, and yeah. Um, and uh, and I'm going wow is that what the algorithms thinks I should be watching I should be. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a bit nervous. No, and I think um, I think there was a time when 
um, and I remember when I was in very involved in outdoor adventure, you know, there was these um, adventure film festivals that uh, came with that uh, grouping. And then, of course, there was also film festivals and they were full of, I don't know, these actors who, who I don't see anywhere else except in cafes and arts-related communities, you know, they're playing these, you know, these amazing roles and and you don't get see action films in those film festivals you just mm. uh, yeah it just seems like um i just did an experiment before where i every time i put on youtube now it's um i have to really i'm having to search again for, for topics that i want because i'm bombarded by covid related stuff because that's so dominant in my yeah. in my feed because of um it's just the nature of the beast i'm a head of an organization and lots of my emails and i'm having to stay current with what the politics are and so as a result my algorithm is just bombarding yeah. me oh, yeah. with, uh, with covid related material and it's um so i've had to learn to type again <laughs> <laughs> yeah um on that the subject you're saying about um where people are, are making a, a living in. You, do you get actors who, or have you met actors that are just like, they are very moral. It doesn't matter what money is thrown at them or what projects are thrown at them. The <clears throat> other people you've come across who are morally will stick to a particular line or bent, or do they have to sell out to pay the bills? No, I, I, there's, definitely, um, there's certainly actors out there that I know who, um, you know, who are in the business for something far greater than the paycheck. There certainly is those people. And um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, and you know, uh, the one person that I particularly was impressed with over the years, and I'm, I could throw names here, but I just, well, one person that I really, I was really impressed with was uh, Kiefer Sutherland. I worked him on the, on a, on, a, on a feature film and I just really adored the guy and one of the things he did that impressed me and I actually read his biography while you know he did a movie called Cowboys with um, um, Woody Harrelson and um, I think the experience had such an impact on him that he walked away from acting and followed the rodeo circuit and became a, rodeo, a cowboy for, <laughs> wow. three or four, for three or four years and um, <clears throat> there was something that was um, that stuck with me, and um, and also not just actors, uh, people um, people in the film industry who are very high profile, but have this completely different um, lifestyle outside of the industry, um, and it's something I've tried to emulate from my own life. Um, uh, you know, an award-winning cinematographer that I know who lives on, you know, who's this hippie on the west coast of New Zealand, and he spends his time, you know working with this community building skateboard parks and um, he comes out and every once in a while to make a movie mm. and he's on the industry and he's in the industry on his own terms as such he's not um, he hasn't bought into the game yeah. and, uh, and 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 one thing I've noticed as you get to know these people at um, uh, more people like-minded people and people similar value starts to pop up and so I realize uh, I'm actually not alone in this um, in, this way there's actually a lot more people out there who are 
I think there is a struggle definitely and uh, in staying true to what your belief system are and to your values uh, because the temptation to um, to be known uh, to be relevant in an industry that's changing all the time and also um, trying to ignore well not ignore uh, accept what people say and praise of you but also put in its rightful place yeah uh, you know um, you know I tend to try and treat success and failure you know with the same brush you know and and um, you know thank you that's awesome I'll uh, take that on board and I'll move on yeah and um, but, but in saying that I still like to you know name drop every once in a while if I'm struggling <laughs> did that I, 20 years ago <laughs> I, rem I remember the did, in a conversation once, did you go fishing with Keith Sutherland uh, I didn't go fishing with Kiefer Sutherland. I um, I was um, I worked with him on a movie called River Queen, and um, it was kind of a really. If you read everything on the media, it was very miserable, and for some, you know, it was one of the best jobs I've ever done. We were in the middle of winter trying to make it look like it was summer, <laughs> and it was snowing, and um, in half of our and people wearing kilts and um, barefooted in the mud and, um, you know, firing um, um, black powder rifles and all sorts of things. And um, it was trying conditions. And we also had other issues relating to health and weather and insurance and a whole lot of things, you know. And But for some reason, you know, the, the people who finished the project just were tight. You know, we um, we knew that we were doing something quite special. It was worth telling, and um, and also people who like to finish what they've started. You know, people didn't. Um, um, there were other, like for me, there was other temptation. There was temptations to go and to go and step into some other more lucrative projects at that particular time, especially when we were when we lost funding of our film and. Um, and all of a sudden, there was no guarantee would come back. There was a temptation just to walk away. But there was people like Kiefer and um, who were determined to come back and finish the film because I don't know. I don't know what the word is for it, but mm. there was a sense that you want completion. You want this. You want this thing to be. Um, even if the experience is going to be not great, you still want to finish it. Yeah. Um, River Queen as a project in the end and. I mean, the, um, I've had mixed reviews and some people say it's the most beautiful thing they've ever seen. And I have a feeling a lot of people have also um, criticized it. There's certainly some continuity issues, but if you look at the background of that film, you probably go, yeah, I can see why that happened. But as a standalone on its own, I think it works. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, but Kiefer specifically, I mean, he embraced the lifestyle that we lived in that rural part of New Zealand. Um, it's we, 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 you know, he brought his guitar and we, our transport department loved to play. And every day after rap, we had songs and drank beers and, and um, ate together and all sorts of things. Wow. That, um, that yeah, it was just sound a fun. Hollywood at all. It's, it's far from Hollywood, and I, <laughs> yeah. wow. you know, the unfortunate thing is, you know, uh, there was one photo of him with his shirt off and uh, dancing with some of us, and um, that was the front page, and that's all people saw of him. It was like, 
why are naming the bad boy of Hollywood? It's like he's far from bad. Yeah, yeah. He's one of, he's one of us. Wow. <laughs> um, has there been a film project you've been on that has changed your point of view, spiritually or mentally, as you were going through the journey of that film? You've, it's, it, it's, it's content changed your point of view, let alone what it would have done to the viewer. Oh, look, very much so. I think, um, um, I think you know, I live here in New Zealand, and I don't take what I have for granted here. And um, and I, one of the things that's happened is that I haven't really, I don't know enough about the New Zealand um, history and its colonization history. So I, and I feel very unqualified to, especially to be on the creative end. Of telling New Zealand stories, um, and sometimes I often think maybe because there's a lack of new Maori um, um, people in my role, and uh, and sometimes I think maybe I've just got the job because of my colouring, and um, but you know it's so a lot of the contents are so they're complex, and um, and it's in the way. I mean, from for somebody watching, you know, a, a blow to the head with a with a traditional weapon as a blow to the head. It could have been anything, but the whole process for actors, particularly, and for actors, for actors and the directors, for everybody involved, um, um, they put a lot of themselves into it. And and one thing I've, I've had to do as a stunt coordinator was just to really be respectful of that. And, uh, and I need to match it with, uh, I need to match that, that level of, um, commitment equally as well and uh, so part of it is understanding the language understanding the culture so a movie that I when I first started out as a stunt coordinator I there's a movie called Crooked Earth uh, shot here in New Zealand and it was directed by Sam Pillsbury and and the actor on that was a, a gentleman called Timwera Morrison who's become quite a good buddy of mine over the years and uh, Timura Morrison was really famous for a New Zealand movie called Once War Warriors. It was a very career-defining role that he did. Mm. But one of the things that when I read the content of uh, Maori culture in it, I said to the producer, I don't think I'm qualified for this movie. I think I'm the wrong person and um, the but I was really proud that they asked me to do it and the producer of that movie, Alan, who's South African, said to me, Ubi, it's a movie. I'm South African. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and okay, well, I guess that's some sort of permission, but you know, that made me work harder. And look, and one of the things I did uh, learn on that was that, um, um, and then not long after that, I did a movie called the movie River Queen is that um, I had to choose my words very carefully the word warrior for a scriptwriter means very differently to a person who, uh, whose ancestors were that, and you're trying to tell their story. Mm. So when I when I use the words like stunt warriors, because that's what they refer to in this call sheet, yeah. I like to change the way I explain that to people because you want people to work with you, and um, um, and to the point where um, we just had to design action in a way that. Um, and the approach. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, when we did the movie River Queen, the the art department built these five 
big, amazing war canoes that was to go down the river. When you fill it up with 20 people dressed in, in um, warfare, traditional warfare, it's quite a sight. And um, in a traditional process, I would just fill all those up with stunt people. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of the safety elements and things related to that, and uh, they can follow instructions. And um, one of the local elders from the tribe nearby came to me and says, nobody's getting on that, bro. <laughs> and this say so. And um, he was very nice about it. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you. I totally agree. And uh, so we had a big gathering of people at the nearby meeting house over a period of two days and welcomed all these people. There was no auditioning. He just said, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. Uh, very little makeup required. Uh, very No acting required. Uh, they got into those canoes. What they thought and, and they were doing, we saw on screen. They were amazing. And uh, nothing was forced. They were naturals in their environment. And when they did these war chants, we call them haka, here, it was coming from somewhere deeper than just scripts and written down. It was, um, yeah. Mm. And, and I guess that's what I, I learned from that. And, um, and it's helped me narrow, um, helped me kind of um, iron out my priorities in terms of how I do action. Um, what I really kind of look for in a, when creating action sequences, it's about believability. You can create awesome, wow, amazing looking action sequences, but do you believe it? That is the that is, that is really key. And um, one of the things I'm a real believer on designing action is I really want stunt people to learn how to act and uh, and bring something of themselves to it because our Western audience so is so connected to eyes and the eyes is such an indicator of emotions. Mm. So uh, when you hit the ground, you know, let, let's see you get hurt and yeah. uh, or act like it hurts, you know, let me believe it. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, we've all seen people um, have an accident. We know the silence that happens when a child gets, have hurt themselves, you know, it's that moment when you're waiting for yeah. the dream to come. Yeah. You know it hurts, you can yeah. feel it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And often, and some of that, you know, I try and incorporate in some of our action is to just like, we need every action sequence to have a level of consequence in terms of rather than just seeing people fall down the stairs, let's see the consequences of why you, what happens when you fall down the stairs. Let's see something break or see you yeah. scream in pain or something. A bit like when Tom Cruise broke his foot doing Mission Impossible stunts and then he carried on running or attempted to carry on running with the broken foot. Absolutely. It did look good and they can't it. Too. <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah. And, you know, you can't, um, that, that's, that was a, those are moments in film. And, um, you know, there was a lot more of that, um, you know, the, in the 90s and prior to that, because, you know, a lot of the stunts they did were one hit wonders because film stock was expensive. Mm. And, um, and, you know, when you blow up a set, you, that's your take. And so you, you made sure that there was enough film stock in the, in the camera and, you get one chance in many cases. Now we have, we can keep cameras rolling for 20 minutes and we can reset and do it again. And um, if it gets too tricky, there's always the VFX supervisor will say, we can fix that in post. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is that why like in the eighties and nineties, whenever something blew up, you'd have to watch it blow up three or four times in a film. 
Because that really annoyed me. I, I never oh. quite got that. Yeah, well, it was such a it's such an expensive shot, and mm. uh, and also I think part of it is that like when you throw cameras at um, at a particular angle, I mean John Woo was very good at doing that in John Woo films. Yeah. When you uh, when you get a great piece of action, I do a little bit of second unit directing, which means I shoot action for the main unit director and um, a particular director. And, said to me one oh you don't worry about continuity and all that so if the shot's cool we're going to use it <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah and, uh, and i think well i think what happens when you have a good action sequence and you throw multiple cameras at it the, the problem is then you've got an editor and a, a whole bunch of producers and stakeholders um who all love all the different angles and deciding which one to put in is oh uh, yeah so you try and please everybody in some respects. And, um, but often I think that's the problem with, with often some of the bigger shows. It takes a committee to for people to agree on oh, yeah. what comes out. What was the most, because looking at the list of some of the films you've worked on here, like Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, uh, Ghost in the Shell, Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon. I've got that DVD. I love that film. It's brilliant. Uh, that Sword of Destiny, is that like a second Crouching Tiger film? Yeah, that is a sequel and um, to the first one. And I... I really love the first film. It was actually yeah. probably one of the f films that I go to a lot for reference that they were able to do. And one of the neat things about working on number two, I was able to work with a big part of the action crew who worked on the, the first one. Mm. And I had some insight into some of the things that they did. And uh, it was really cool. Um, mm. The fight choreographer and action director from the movie one was actually the director of the second movie, Master mm. Yuan Wu-Ping. Okay. Did you have to learn a new lingo and to communicate, or is, is English like a, a national language of the stunt and film world? Well, I think film, um, film itself, there's a lot of uh, communication that that is cross-cultural. Um, you know, after a while, after a day or two, you you get each other, especially in when people who work in the same department as you do. Mm. Uh, I mean, we had translators um, and also even the the team from China um, that I had on that show, these, the senior members were from, uh, they speak, speak um, Cantonese while the rest of the team spoke Mandarin. So even there was a little bit of a divide amongst themselves. Mm. And, um, and also uh, they had a very strong hierarchy system that uh, within that. So what often works is that um, you're only having to deal with um, a very small member of the crew. And uh, and so I had to learn very quickly how to communicate what needed to be done. And that translated down to the masses, I guess you could say. Um, that's been a system that has worked over and over in other uh, cross-cultural um, productions I've done with China, etc. cetera. Um, you've done The Hobbit, The Chronicles of Narnia, Fantasy Island and others. Which was the most fun out of all of the films, out of those sort of big headline films? Which was the most fun? Oh, look, I think um, they all had their strengths, didn't they? I mean, um, look, Pirates of the Caribbean, we were in the Dominican. We went to a place called Dominica hmm. um, out there in the Caribbean. And um, I mean, that was fun. I mean, where else do you get to work in your underwear and, you know, <laughs> go swimming at lunchtime and, yeah, drink rum. And, you know, pretty much. I, I mean, I had my first four pina coladas in my life on the deck of a resort, looking at a cruise ship. And uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, you can be 
I'm not gonna lie, it was awesome. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, at at the end of the day, one of the guys taught me how to play poker, and um, and it's a great. Um, you know, it's a, it's a window into your life that you get and uh, to be paid to do it and, and to work on something that you can use as a reference mm. for a point in time, you know, for, you know, my wife rang me up. We were on a, I mean, a time difference. She told me that she was pregnant for, for our boy, you know, so Paris the Caribbean, you know, so guess what yeah. we did that night? We drank some pina colada and we smoked some cigars in honor of my boy Rico. And, uh, <laughs> And, um, you know, Lord of the Rings was amazing for, for that period. We're coming up to 20 years now for the release of the first one. Um, the camaraderie, you can't do a job. It was a, a long project. Uh, we did principal photography over a period of a year and a half. I came in halfway through that. And then, um, and then we did three years of pickups for each film. We did like two or three months worth of pickup shooting. What's a pickup um, shooting? So Pickups. So what happened with, um, in most films when they are doing editing, you know, they often need shots that wasn't, they weren't able to get just the way, because what happens is when an editor is there in the editing suite, uh, he or she can only work with the bits of content that's in front of them. And they've read the same script and they're trying to glue this film together that the, yeah. that's written down and, and often gaps are not there and you know for all sorts of reasons that cannot be explained the schedule you the weather was bad that day and the lighting just didn't quite work so you have a uh, right. you reschedule to go back and do most organized productions don't need a lot of pickups they probably do two or three days but in lord of the rings they really much went into principal photography where they shot three films knowing they would need to do pickups okay. because uh, they just had to prioritize all the availability of actors and locations oh, yeah. for that bro yeah so when and uh but and so because they were shooting three movies but then when it came to releasing the first movie there was obviously gaps in that so we had to go back and shoot um some of the bigger action sequences and stuff just to film yeah uh, and uh it was it was inevitable because the lord of the rings trilogy particularly in the hobbit later they had so many characters in it so each one needed attention it's almost as tough uh, to to fit all that in and some characters show up a bit stronger than others and some needed more attention to justify certain things in the story and um, and plus the fact that Peter Jackson was doing something revolutionary it was never been done before so you yeah. know there was always going to be things that were going to be bigger than were you than involved her, in the uh, the most popular YouTube scene I've I, I think I've seen that on the internet it's often reviewed where the guy who had broken his toe by kicking a helmet and he carried on having to kick the, the helmet, even though he'd broken his toe. So his screams were actually genuine because he was in agony. He'd already broken his toe, but he kept having to do the take again because he did the first one wrong or something. I can't remember the I lead guy's that, name. I think it's Viggo Mortensen. He kicked That's the, the helmet yes. at the edge of the Fangon forest. And I was not there when he kicked that helmet, but um, when we shot uh, the pickups to... The two towers which was the, that was the early stage of the two towers that was when i was asked to come and uh, become the stunt coordinator of um and so we actually shot the scene of the all the urukais and orcs getting attacked uh by the riders of um rohan at night and then the two um 
and the two boys um, crawled under the horses. So that was one of the first things that I supervised. Um, so yes, I, I, I was involved with the scene, but not the kicking of that. I don't need a stunt coordinator to kick a helmet. If there was, <laughs> if there was a stunt coordinator present on that day, we probably yeah. would have said, do we have a soft version of this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, true. It's often the situation. So if, if the stunt department was not involved, that probably explains a little bit why he kicked a real helmet. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, oh, yes. But, you know, in saying that, uh, bless him, you know, Vigo is another one of those gentlemen who, um, you know, he was believable and yeah. uh, a real salt of the earth character. And, uh, you know, I would probably guess knowing Vigo, um, there was probably they probably brought a soft one in after he kicked that one, but he probably chose to keep kicking the the real helmet and right. uh, and feel the pain every time. That was a quality. That's a sort of guy that he is. Yeah. And um, and also they probably had a soft one from right from the start, but he just, <laughs> just didn't tell him. <laughs> he just, he just now he's broke his toe. Don't tell him. <laughs> yeah, that was the least of his worries. There's more things he broke that guy on yeah. that shoot. Yeah. One of the films I was impressed by, it's not one you've worked on, but on uh, Gladiator, when you look at the list of injuries that Russell Crowe sustained doing that film, and I think he even lost the end of one of his fingers or a thumb uh, with a sword. And it's like the things that they go through to, to live out the art. It, have you come across any act? Well, obviously don't name them, but there are any actors who are just the complete opposite. They are so wetter than wet and they will not go near anything scary. Do, do they exist? They do exist. And, um, and I also know that, um, that um, I very much uh, find that actors respond really, respond to the environment that is created for them. Hmm. And, um, and I, I think in an action film like uh, Gladiator particularly, you cannot, um, you cannot baby actors because it is such a physical role and that goes right back, you know, the quality of that production really goes back to the producers and the, the stunt team involved. You know, I think they were, they prepped Russell really well. I mean, I think mm. firstly they got a guy that could ride. So he didn't need much doubling at all. You know, I yeah. think he did. I mean, he could really ride and there was some swinging that sword and especially on that lead charge. So they, uh, they really worked to his strengths and, um, and the fact that, um, you know, um, he didn't have a, a gym body. He actually had a body of a person who looked like worked in the fields. Mm. Uh, you know, he didn't have a six pack, but you can sense that this is a person who can certainly hold himself, you know, if it needed to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, and I also have been in productions where, um, where, I, look, I, one of the things I'm, really good at and not that i've had any official training i'm really good at detecting bullshit <laughs> and um and uh there is a game that people play that actors sometimes can play and i know it's not just actors i've seen producers do it i've seen stunt people do it and um because the machine of filmmaking uh enables it and um it uh, enables it and so you know one of the things you you, you probably um, you know, a classic one is, you know, don't expect it on week one, but when you've got a big part of the film in the can of people have already, you know, the film cannot, um, has to have you. Mm. 
So what you see often, the signs are often in people who are working themselves into a position where they can't be replaced. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that uh, you see, and it happens even in the stunt world, I've seen that happen where people try and make themselves into irreplaceable. But, you know, as somebody said, try dying and see how quickly we can replace you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and right. uh, it's it's uh, yeah, it's 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 um, I've seen some people use it as a game, and um, and uh, but in saying that, look, and I also really want to shout out, there's um, it's changing now, uh, more and more so. I think there was a time when a lot of um, especially in fast turnaround television, they have to go through lots of people from episode to episode. So what you often get is underprepared mm. uh, people, and um, there's often um, an and they turn over actors a lot. And so uh, the people who do the casting are often actors. Uh, very rarely do people like stunt people get invited into some of those casting situations to right. um, to help, um, um, you know, narrow down the choices of people on their physical ability. Uh, you know, it's always a trade-off, you know, when you look at some of you like um, John Wick, where they cast a lot of stunt people in some key roles who have acting they actually had lines and um well they're stunt actors so but that's a very that's kind of where a lot more people are going uh especially as they get older a lot of people coming out of acting school now who actually have really good all-around physical skills as well because they see a market for themselves uh, in that field um so more and more i'm working a lot with actors who are actually prepared who are ready for it but specifically in fast around tv you there is a you generally tend to have people fall through the gaps and uh, they and they're generally not prepared and not ready and so and that's where the role of a, a really good stunt double or you soften the action up a little bit so they can still do it um that whole thing about being believable yeah sometimes having a double does not always work and sometimes it's easier to get an awkward piece of action that's believable than trying to have something so dynamic and unrealistic for that character yeah and uh or you get a really wonderful double who knows how to emulate and imitate that particular style of that's required. And just finding that, just bridging it to something awesome and believable, you know, without deterring from the flow of the the story. Is there any, Uh, is there an actor, either male or female that you thought they looked out of shape, they just didn't appear and then they blew you away. They actually were really actually on the A game. Um, not out of shape. I mean, um, look, one of the people that I've struggled to, a woman that I worked with, her name was Shailene Woodley. She was the hardest person to, for me to find a double for. Uh, Shailene's amazing. And, um, you know, and bless, um, you know, she'd be, she'd be one of my friends growing up. If I was in my twenties, like she was, you know, we would be in the same group of people, um, she was very capable. She held her own, and and because she spent a lot of time, she grow, She's got a home in Hawaii, so she's out in the environment doing things. Uh, when you look at her, you don't go. Oh, she goes to the gym. No, she goes out into the. She goes out there. She swims in the big waves and surfs. She's out there just doing stuff. She's mm-hmm. living life, and it actually became a real problem when it came to looking for a stunt double for her, because most stunt doubles available of that height went to the gym so their silhouette was very different yeah so they stacked up in measurements but when you're in a bikini on a deck of a boat or you're out of the water your silhouette is really is very different 
And yeah. um, it's uh, so professional stunt women particularly uh, focus on strength and conditioning. And, you know, if you're doing a lot of that in the gym, you are going to look a certain way. Somebody like Shailene was just, um, she looks like the girl next door, very capable. She's in a bikini one day. She's in a, in a dress in a shopping mall the next. And, um, but never did she falter. She did everything. She was amazing. She was capable. And um, yeah. Um, so very difficult to double, but uh, probably the best ever outcome in terms of a, a leading lady. Wow. Is there anything you would advise um, physique-wise or to, are there any coaches or people you've seen on the circuit that are available to the world, as it were, to access for advice in regards to being physically fit in that regard? Because obviously you have the, the gym type body that isn't really a living body or a body that you can put to work in a living lifestyle. Whereas there are do you know what I mean? Like you train people, like you were saying about Russell Crowe and whatnot, they were built in a certain way. They were built up, but to show that he was a man of the fields, he was like a, a tough, hardworking guy, as opposed to I've done 50 reps on this, I've done 50 reps. Do you know what I mean? Is, is there a, a particular instructor or coach that you would recommend on that or philosophy? Yeah, there's any people out there uh, who are uh, doing it. I think there's actually more uh, of them. Often one of the problems in this business is that, um, um, you know, success breeds success, and uh, which can become a problem because, you know, you if some person does one thing at this particular job, they often get recommended for another one. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you forget that everybody has a first time in the industry. There are people out there, the, uh, the person that I used on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was his first time working in a film set. And uh, he was busy training one of the UFC fighters, but actually, one of the things he said to me was that like, oh yeah, most of the people I, my job is very much, very little to do with making people look physically awesome. Mm. It's actually, I'm actually just trying to change people's lives. Right. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's, uh, and I find that the gym is, uh, he spend, uh, he, they spend more time talking to people, building them up than lifting weights or doing routines. It was, right. uh, it was a really wonderful insight into, into that world. And, but when it came to delivering results in a very short time with certain people, he was on point. Hmm. Um, but, but, you know, in terms of his business, that's kind of where it was really cutting edge was actually oh, yeah. making ordinary people become, um, you know, capable, I guess is the word capable yeah. of being living life, uh, confidently. Uh, look in terms of my work, it's actually not that far different. Um, most actors are, um, I've been really lucky over the years that I've worked with a lot of uh, directors who are doing their first feature film or their second or and often in most cases the 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 heads of departments like myself um, we are often the most experienced people mm. in the in the filmmaking process even more so than the directors or in some cases the actors so I'm very aware that we have to create the environment where people uh, as a stunt coordinator, you know, when you're working with somebody who's, who's landed a role because of some line that he delivered that was really key to the story, but we've got to build up this ability to suit that key part of the, mm. of the story. And it requires work. And sometimes you have to, it goes into diet, it goes into uh, routine. Um, to some extent, though, often the way people process this, um, this job uh, um, 
the person pretty much has to become that character right from the moment that they arrive at work every day. They have to lead the people around them. Uh, I mean, a great example is I worked with a, a chap recently called Uli Latukev, who's a wonderful upcoming uh, action actor. Um, it was his biggest role. and um, But right from the word go, he was training harder than everybody else. He was disciplined. He was resting at night. Uh, he delivered on all his action beats. And guess what? The, what was the payoff for that in terms of the end product? He just played the young Dwayne Johnson, yeah. uh, CBS comedy. You know, it was a, I would say there was a direct, that work ethic that he put in off the camera reflected what happened in, the, in front of the lens. Yeah. And, and, you know, the payoff now is that he's a fantastic individual who's going to be a superstar because, you know, success breeds success. And um, what you do off camera resonates in front of the camera. There's only, mm. there's only so much that acting will get you through. Okay. Um, what happens uh, after that success? I, I remember reading you, you talk about uh, where you see people crumble is like lack of cash flow, rejection, and the management of that success. I presume in your industry, it's pretty much sudden affluence of income, uh, the sudden affluence of attention, but then you've somehow got to manage it, retain it, and whether the storm for the fact that at some point in the future that might not be there uh, how do you like in your you yourself how do you manage that and to pray <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> there's probably a lot of truth in that uh irrespective of yeah. religion there, there is something in that yeah right? yeah pray and um look i think you know i think um you know i mean there's, there's parts of it, isn't there? Like cash flow is really one of the things that I've had to do really for me is to view this industry that I'm part of, that I enjoy. It feels like a, a hobby at times. Uh, I have to treat it like a business, understand what the rules are. Hmm. Uh, and it is a business. And for any business, you know, cash flow is the biggest. If you're not getting cash flow coming through, um, then it just because it's just going to become a job because you know when you've got cash coming through it's you're confident you can train you can look forward to things with some purpose rather than feel like you're you know when's the next one going to come and mm. um do i start paying the tax uh do i what to do with that tax account so your cash flow is i mean that's right across the board for anybody who's in business so you need good cash flow and i've seen a lot of people who are just on the verge of breaking but reality sets in, they don't have the money coming through because their last job, especially when you're starting out, um, uh, when you start out, you probably get one or two great gigs and then the next one is probably six months away. That's the reality. Mm. And, uh, but, the jo um, but they've probably walked away from, the, from their, a steady income to do that one or two days that paid really well. And then all of a sudden they think the next one's gonna come and it's like, and uh, you're looking at your phone every day. Um, is there a text message? For, does anybody else want me? So yeah, not having that cash flow is disheartening. So you end up committing yourself to something that requires you to be. And when that opportunity comes, you uh, you're taken up elsewhere. And uh, uh, rejection is another one. Um, the two, one and two, often go together because you know if you don't have cash flow, you often feel like everybody's rejecting you. <laughs> and um, and you know, and that's the reality. And um, the um, 
and it's one of the things that the business is not very good at. It's very good at praising you when you do the job right, um, but it quickly forgets about you and then move on to the next one. And um, we're very mindful of that in our stunt department, particularly in a small community like New Zealand. We're aware that during COVID, while we are enjoying a really busy period, not everybody's sharing in that. There are people out there who are really starting out in their career, who've given everything. It takes a lot to train to become a... Um, a representative rugby player that's what it takes the level of commitment to become a stunt performer yeah and you have to you have to be ready you're gonna have to you could get a phone call tonight you need to be there tomorrow and you need to hit the ground running mm. so you have to be ready all the time and so there you go and um so that uh so that people out there who are you know um there's another way to say it when the when nobody's talking to you there is that the rejection does come in and that doesn't stop even for somebody like myself who's 25 plus years in the industry. Um, still the same, uh, I've become better at it. I've become better at uh, uh, filling up my time. Um, like right now I was lined up for three major projects and I was hoping that one of them or two of them would wait and while in the other one, so only because so, I can only do one of them, but you know what happens? All three have gone away, and wow. so all of a sudden, from a really busy March, all of a sudden now gone, and um, and so but wait and see. You know the you look uh, you wait and and see what happens. You listen to the dialogue and the the, the greater forces of uh, politically right now. What's happening in our border and weighing that up with a phone call that says can you come overseas for four months and you kind of go it's nice to have choice but is that a choice i actually want yeah <laughs> um yeah. so uh, is that a choice i actually want and uh what is the you know what is the um what is the consequence of just saying yes to that you know i've become very i go if you hop on a plane now to go and work whether in Europe or Asia or anywhere, I, I, um, it's a minimum of two months trip from a country like New Zealand because there's a six, uh, six week waiting list to come back to get into quarantine and then two weeks in quarantine. Jesus Christ, really? And, uh, yes, it is. So that's a huge one to take on board. Unless you're doing a film and, in a hotel, does that count? <laughs> See, like earlier, late last year, I went to Dominican Republic to start a project and I was there for 10 days and we pulled the pin on it. So um, a three month away job turned into three and a half weeks, two of which was um, in a hotel room in quarantine. Yeah. And that on sucks. this side, and it does suck. And uh, the last one really is, um, is managing your success. And I think this is, uh, um, so it can break you before you make it. And then it can also break you once you make it. And, um, and so, uh, and I think, um, um, often it's the, it's the celebratory part of succeeding is often what gets people is that they they forget that they should just celebrate it because you've got to carry on living afterwards. Um, <laughs> I've literally seen um, it, it, a, a lot of the lifestyle of the film industry is not sustainable and um, it's not sustainable. Even the amount of praise you get is not sustainable. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the things about my department particularly, it's... Um, because we recognize the skill level of many people. And um, uh, 
Um, I always say it's a great time to come into the business when you're in your mid-20s. You have some life experience. You've got a few skills up your sleeve. You know what it has to be rejected and burnt a few times. But, you know, um, in saying that, you know, there's been 18-year-olds who have earned 100K and uh, in a very quick time. And if they don't have the support network and mentoring to help them navigate having that much money, you know, um, it could quickly lead to a false, um, yeah, um, you know, a false way of looking at the world and what this industry can actually do for you. Cool. And, uh, do you do you see life going forward as a, a middle-aged adventure or a battleground? Oh, look, definitely an adventure. Uh, I like what I know, <laughs> and also I realise that I don't know much either. Uh, I've become <laughs> very, I've become very good at a, at a few things, and. Um, you know, and, you know, I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't ask my teenagers how something works right. and, um, and they're forever correcting me. So there's means there's a lot out there that I don't know. Um, so definitely an adventure. And I guess the challenges at the moment is, um, look, I went kayaking down a class four, five river about two weeks ago, and it's the first time I've done it in 20 years. And, uh, you know, I've done bits here and bits there of lower grades um, and I came to the end I was absolutely sore the next day and I realized that um, I was awesome <laughs> and uh, it's like riding a bike and um, and I still went down those rapids that I did when I was in my 20s but I was absolutely sore and also realized that I was lucky and uh, because the consequences of something going wrong was quite could be permanent and I don't have the the same speed that I did uh, when I was doing it all the time yeah and um, and so the challenge for me at the moment you know do I look into the next as I start the the third act I guess you could say yeah. of our of our existence you know do I fall back on the skills that are there and mold it to suit my age or uh, are there opportunities out there for me to go and try like I'm I've always wanted to see what um, kite surfing's like. It looks like a great sport for middle-aged guys because you know you get to sail up, you're in a harness, and you it doesn't you just okay. got to control the kite surfing looks something like that, or maybe power boating, and <laughs> it just sounds it just sounds expensive. Power boating uh, is bloody violent. I've done that in Florida, and believe me, if if you uh, got any spinal issues, I would suggest do not do it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So, it looks yeah. great from the side when you're standing on the key as someone goes by at 20 knots, but 20 knots in a powerboat is quite it's tough. I've always been envious of uh, golf players, how you know how that just just looks like the ultimate life to be able to go walking on a manicured lawn with a trolley, <laughs> hitting a ball with a stick. And I have, you know, I played that game 18 holes done it once yeah. in my life and i said to the people that i was playing never again why because i loved it i could see why people do this but if i start this game i'll have to give up everything else or most of them anyway and wow. uh, it's just it's just it's just i could see it I mean, who, who else? I mean, you could smoke a cigar, you could talk to people on the phone, you can drink beer as you play. I mean, it's, and you can say it was exercise. It was, um... <laughs> is it? 
I know the well, walking the is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's a good exercise in anger management. If I was to give it a go, I'm sure I'd be angry after about two or three swipes of the ball. And yeah, probably an interesting um, reflection on my own personal issues if, uh, if a psychiatrist was with me uh, monitoring my game. Um, so yeah, life's a middle-aged adventure. We'll take the positive on that. That's good. In the last year, you're talking about like lockdown, you've been in hotels. What's in your own life or your own point of view in the world has changed as a result of uh, the set, the uh, enforced quarantine of our population? My daughter just came back from Outward Bound and um, we sent her on a eight and on a 21 day adventure course and she wrote me a letter. Um, she wrote me a letter while she was uh, on her three days solo experience where she spent three nights in the bush by herself and she decided to write me a letter and she handed me the letter when she got home it was a very beautifully articulated letter and wow. uh, telling me all the things that she'd like to do with me and um you know I don't, i'm sure she won't mind sharing but one of the things she did say dad i realize how resilient i am and um and i was like wow and um and one of the things that's happened in the last year is that i've um you know probably one of the few people that are saying thanks to COVID lockdown is that I realized how much I like being at home. And um, I've, um, as much as the adventure of making films and traveling and doing all these things exciting, but I also realized just how much of um, how good I am at being at home. Hmm. And um, <laughs> is that, um, and a lot of the skills that I been using out there in my industry actually has, um, um, has probably has greater meaning when I apply it to the things that my children and my family are involved in. You know, I've watched my children play volleyball and my daughter and and play rugby and do all sorts of things. And um, so, um, and I guess to some extent, you know, I've, I was aware that I didn't want to become this, but I was starting to believe in my own media and what uh, you know, and what this industry was doing. You know, it's I. Um, I'm starting to judge the quality of people based on the screen credits that they have. And I was starting to think, do people think the same way about me? And I'd spent a lot of time on what people were perceiving of me and in terms of what they see of me online and what movies I do and what, so all those things. And they helped paint a picture of um, who Augie Davis was. Mm. And, uh, and here I was, you know, with a year at home and before my daughter went out bound, I said to her privately, you know, I'm really glad that I'm home this year too. And she quietly and said to me, well, dad, of all the years you've been away, I'm glad you were here for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, wow. and, um, but she's still, but she's still one of my biggest pushes. She still wants me to go away and take, to go to exotic locations because she's of age now to possibly volunteer herself to come and be my two IC or something. And, uh, mm. Or anyway, she just likes to visit and go shopping. I think that's really It's <laughs> always an ulterior motive, but hey, everyone yeah. needs one. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, but uh, yeah. And, well, look, I just, uh, yeah, I think um, the things that I have, um, yeah, learned from last year, really, overall, is just the, um, um, there is a, there's two sides to, the issues that have come, you know, yes, there's all this um, pandemic and us as New Zealanders are really sheltered uh, from what's going on in other parts of the world. 
um, the um, we don't have the big rates. We still have uh, enjoy people walking around with no masks. And uh, but in saying that, we do have issues over here. Um, I think one of the things that uh, probably been really good for me personally, outside of my stuff with my family, is that um, um, it's made me really look deeply in terms of looking at what my what I value. Uh, what's important to me and um, I'm reminded a lot of the fact that um, most of the writings the New Testaments from the Apostle Paul um, which was writings to the early Christian church was that he was actually writing it from prison and uh, I just and I've got that in the back of my mind in terms of like yes you preach all the stuff but yes you're in prison <laughs> So somewhere in here, there's a story in there somewhere about, um, and I've, something I've been reflecting a lot on is, is like, you know, um, when I was working overseas in China, I was really taken by the environment that I was working in. I was there for eight months and um, I read uh, the, the Communist Manifesto. I also read a book called... Um, ordinary men and uh, role of ordinary middle-aged men who cleaned up the ghettos for the Nazi army, how they volunteered their services for that. And, you know, I've had to ask the question, you know, my, myself, you know, which part of history are you going to be part of? You know, the world is changing so quickly. And, and as I think about my children and, and all those things, um, I grew up in a in a small island of Fiji where, you know, we've had so much political unrest. And um, as I listen to the division in the world and, um, you know, and over the issues of COVID and the stuff with Trump going on and, um, and I'm saddened by it, but I'm not surprised by it. Um, yes, and in a, a country like New Zealand, we're not all that different. You know, we've got our own divisions over here. And uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not blind to it, and I know that we have issues in here that we need to sort out as much as we do in the Pacific Islands and mm. and other places. So I'm really thinking deeply about, you know, where's where's my role in it, and um, and you know, and where is my limit when I will start writing letters from prison if I don't agree with a certain way, and when my if my if I disagree with the way my industry is going, or even with basic things like school, those kind of things, they are. I'm just not going to pretend that those things are not in my peripheries when they clearly are, because it's shoved in front of me. Yeah. And um, okay. So where do yeah, you? Yeah. Well, where do you see the next year? Do you see it with excitement, nervousness? Uh, how do you see it? Um. Both, uh, I'm excited. And um, the one of the things that, um, and a lot of that is not to do with so much what's going on in the world, it's to actually do with my children. I can start to count the days, the years now that they're, you know, they're going out to get jobs and or further education where they leave home. And um, I was a 15 year old boy. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about the possibilities that I'm in right now, but I'm also nervous because time goes by so quickly. Mm. Um, you know, to give you an example, um, I would do one or two movies a year uh, in last, and that will appear on my credit page uh, on IMDb. But last uh, last year, I probably did eight projects. Wow! So, 
yes, eight projects. And uh, a lot of them, they range from one was three months and one and right down to two days to five days, um, yeah. different sizes. Yeah. So that's just kind of the, how things have changed so quickly from having to do one or two jobs a year to yeah. like all of a sudden I have, I have to do eight to stay afloat. So, um, mm. but you go. are staying afloat. I am staying afloat and, uh, it's, um, but at the same token, um, it seems like everything at the moment is pending on policies and uh, decision-making by our, our government. So, um, we'll just walk with caution, um, and, uh, be ready to respond and where we can start things. I mean, the podcast was really, um, starting Stunstruck podcast was a, a way really of looking ahead, uh, not for monetize. Very much so. Yeah, Good, like a, yeah. Episode, uh, season two, it's, we're recording already, so they'll start to go back next week. Um, you know, what that does, it's, um, it's currency. It's uh, currency in the sense it's, um, it's also giving back. It's, um, it, also, it, gives, uh, it gives me an, idea, an opportunity to share ideas and I guess also share values, which is, mm. a, is a big one at the moment. It's really to share values that, that matter, that Fantastic. people can... They can last longer than a paycheck, I guess. Got you. Well, where where mm. can people find you? Uh, obviously, there's your podcast. What was the name of the podcast again? Stunt Struck. S-T-U-N-T. Stunts. S-Truck. It, it, I was lazy because I have a, a truck, which I put stunts gear in. I call it Stunt Struck. And, <laughs> and, and, <inside laughs> and, uh, and inside that truck, I've had many conversations with um, stunt people and uh, that I've mentioned over the period. And it's and it's that and it's kind of and it is that it's literally about ordinary people like you and I who are out there doing extraordinary things. You know, I never there was yeah. nothing in my upbringing that prepped me to be a stunt coordinator, yeah. but um, it was there for somebody else to do. But when I found myself in it, I realised that hey, um, you could call this a a destiny, a calling, whatever, but you can't ignore it. Ah. But, uh, yeah, definitely. And it's did, did that truck that, go with you on the, when you did the Burr Grills stuff, or was that on Forest no, Shores? No, no, that was. Um, I've gone through several trucks over the years. Um, when I did Bear Grills, I was. Um, we were travelling in style. Oh no, 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 no. We, we flew on planes and rode taxis with beer. No, 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 no. no. catered lunch. Yeah. The whole, the whole shebang. We were. We filled up auditoriums around New Zealand, three made shows, and uh, oh, I don't know, it was nothing like Man vs. Wild. This was, was more like, where shall we have lunch today? Yeah. Um, that was great, but all those maggots and fish eyes, that's just for the show. Yeah. And, Is it uh, a case that where the guest on the show has to eat all the weird stuff, but the rest of the crew are just sort of behind the camera gorging on lovely food? Pretty much. And, uh, <laughs> And, and look, I've, I've got to take my hat off to that guy. He's really awesome. And um, the when I was a, a keen young mountaineer, I knew that he had got up Everest because we were the same vintage. And I was slightly jealous of my, I think I remember saying my friends, yeah, but he's got 50 grand US. He can afford to do that. You know, uh. reading 15 grand a year. And um, so, uh, and, you know, because that was one of the, the dreams was to climb Everest. And he did it. It was great. Oh, good on him. But he's a really cool guy who um, I find him really awkward with the success that he's got. Yeah. And there's something 
cool about that. And I think uh, that's one of the things I like about the industry is that people who often struggle with success uh, are people who are people I probably resonate with. Okay. Um, yeah, it's like, well, somebody's somebody noticed. Yep. <laughs> Well, we've certainly noticed you today, sir, and I, I noticed you in previous and your in your podcast show, the way you communicate and the way you come across. It's like your beingness uh, when you meet you is like. I don't want to say when I say the word calculated, I don't mean like a murderer, but I mean you're very well planned and methodical in your think and the way you see things. And I can tell every action you probably do. There's you may be running several versions of that scenario through your mind before you do it. I don't know whether that's true or not. But you just come across as a very organized guy. And if I was running a, a company that was going a little bit mad and I brought you into an office, I know people would calm down and listen. I just know that that would occur when you arrive. Do you, do you find that normally happens when you arrive to, somewhere? Yeah, look, I um, when I was working in the outdoors, taking um, um, young people out particularly, um, because I was young myself, and I was, and I was, and I was often frustrated because I just really wanted to do some of the adventures. And somebody said to me, "The people you're taking out are there for the adventure, not you." <laughs> yeah. And uh, you need you need to be in control of that as much as you can of the situation. Um, and and what and in terms of risk management, in the back of my mind, there is the question. What do you have to say to the coroner if the shit hits the fan? What are you going to say to the coroner? <laughs> that was a good idea. <laughs> and uh, philosophy. I, yeah, <laughs> so I guess in the back of my mind, when I'm, um, <laughs> I I go into every stunt situation really with that. It says, what do I say to the coroner if this thing hits the fan? Because the thing about stunt work different for special effects or blow up stuff is that we are the department that have to put people in it the yeah. consequences of us something going wrong is not a it's not a fan that falls over it's not a dented wall or whatever no it's actually there's a breathing individual that makes it a stunt so you have, well, the, a stunt is actually when something in the human being is actually involved otherwise it's just a mechanical effect yeah and, uh, and we measure the success by how awesome it is and by if the person walks out. So in the back of my mind, it says, what do I say to the coroner? And, um, and uh, okay, so I'll say that, but we want to avoid going to the coroner. What do I say to the, um, you know, to the A&E doctor? How do I explain what happened? And uh, or in some cases, what do I say to the, to the spouse? Or what do I say to, you know, their children? And, uh, and at some point, all these things have happened. And uh, except the coroner part, <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've had to be get involved with the coroner report, but it wasn't related to stats. It was a personal adventure that happened, yeah. and so those were learning things. And when you realise, um, you know, um, that you know we were, um, you know, and I, I, I feel like I owe it some explanation. You know, with me and my friend, when we kayaked a very serious bit of a river, we. And, and he drowned in a very public way in front of hundreds of people. And, uh, you know, that, um, um, it was an adventure. We were, you know, we were criticized by some, but we were, we were celebrated by by others that we were doing something that it, very few people had done before. Yeah. So, you know, it depends which narrative you, 
you kind of go with it. But either way, we still had, I still personally had to sort of deal with, um, um, you know, the, the realities of, you know, somebody dying in, uh, uh, on, a, on a river. Um, you know, I've also had to, where there's been injuries on set, some of it mine, some of it I'm not in charge, some, you know, that, you know, we have to fill out a report. That is the reality of the game that I'm in. Uh, I deal with people who, you know, um, who train, but also like rugby players and any other sport, it's the product of the business you're in. Mm. I, I, I rolled a truck recently and, um, you know, came over with a grazed elbow. Um, was it acceptable? Depends who you talk to, but boy, did it look great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for doing those things that do look great. I'm sure there's many a, a listener that's uh, seen, or I think pretty much everyone will have seen one of your works upon the big screen. And uh, so we thank you very much for those entertaining moments. And um, Augie, well, all I can do now is uh, wish you well. Thank you for joining me and uh, podcast away. <laughs>